This morning as we talk about wisdom, we're really going to talk about are we tapped into the source of true wisdom or are we settling for a false wisdom that this world has to offer that just doesn't work, that leads to disaster. You know, in James, we've been talking about how to put faith into practice, real faith in real life. And he's gotten pretty real the last few weeks as we've talked about teachers and we've talked about the tongue. We challenged last week ourselves with a challenge for just 48 hours. How'd that go? Just 48 hours. Could we not criticize anybody? And could we not say anything that was negative about anybody? 48 hours is easy, right? How'd that go? There's a couple of responses. Terrible. How many blew it during your first 48 hours? Okay, yeah, most of us. I, I was on the way to school Monday morning. I've shared this with a couple of you. And this, this driver just made a U-turn right in front of me, almost hit me. I almost hit them, actually. Cause they turn, and, and I said something about a stupid driver, something like that. And my son's like, well, Dad, your 48, hour, 48 hours just started over. <laughs> But he was stupid. <laughs> and I've heard that from a lot of you. One of you accused me of, of picking 48 hours just so we would do it the whole year. Because we'd always have to keep restarting. Because we, we can. Why is it so hard, though, to control our tongue and what we say? Well, ideas. Why is that so hard? We're human. Okay. I heard selfish. We're taught it's okay. Yeah, that's how we respond. It's an imperfect world. And we are fighting the, the world's system. We are fighting that imperfection. And so today in the text, as James goes on, after he's just socked us in the gut about the tongue, and it did me, now he goes on to say, okay, let's talk about what comes from the heart. Because if we're ever going to, to master the tongue, not that we will this side of eternity... But if we're ever going to see more success there, we have to start dealing with what's in the heart and, and how that affects, how that comes out of the mouth. Because we know that words are just a symptom of what we're thinking and what's in the heart and what we're feeling. And so in this section, James is going to get down to wisdom and say, okay, let's talk about a source of real wisdom and let's compare that with the world's wisdom. And really the, the, the point of today, and it's at the top of your notes there, we show that we have real godly wisdom by our humble, peaceful, and good conduct toward each other. That's it. Again, it sounds so simple. We show we have real godly wisdom by our humble, peaceful, and good conduct toward each other. And quite frankly, we show a lack of wisdom. We show that we're foolish human beings when we struggle with our relationships here on earth, with our vertical relation, our horizontal relationships. Turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We're just going to look at six verses this morning. 13 through 18. And I want to start by reading them together. And then like we, we do, we break them down and look for some application out of those. But James chapter 3, 13 through 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black one right under a seat right around you. Black hardcover one. And we invite you to take that out. Follow along. If you're using version, we should have an event up. Is that live? Those that are following along. And so you can, you can um, read along there with the verses and the points if you would like. But James, is after he's just talked about the tongue, he says this, starting at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? 
By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, it's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I don't know if you caught it, but James here, he spends the verse verse introducing the idea of wisdom and, and giving us an idea of the big picture of how we show wisdom. But then in 14 through 16 and then 17 and 18, he spends some time comparing two worldviews. This world's view of wisdom and God's view of wisdom. And he breaks it down. He says, let's look at the source of each. Let's look at the characteristics of each. And let's look at the result of each. And let's see which one really works. Let's see which one's really better. And so as we, we know this, right? We know that we are fighting a worldview from this world that is atrocious at times. Fair enough? If you looked at the news this week, there is no question that a Christian worldview is under attack, that Christian wisdom is under attack in this world. In fact, this world would take most of the, the points that we stand on as believers, most of the truths of God's Word, and they would call them backwards and twisted and strange. What? You won't sleep together before you're married? That's strange. You don't fudge on your taxes if you can? That's bizarre. You won't lie to keep yourself out of trouble? What kind of person are you? <laughs> you won't watch porn? Or, or actually these days most R-rated movies for that matter? You won't get drunk? Come on, enjoy life. You, will, you, you don't want to kill a baby so your life's not messed up? You don't believe people can be whatever gender they want? Yeah, this is real stuff when we talk about wisdom. And, and we find that the, the biblical view of every one of these issues is so oppositional to the world's view right now that this passage takes on a whole new importance to understand and a whole new importance for us to commit to God's wisdom and to commit to the truth of Scripture. And he's going to give us a rationale of why when we look at the results of these worldview. He's going to ask us the question, which worldview do you want? Which source of wisdom do you want? Do you want the world, what the world has to offer? Or do you want what God has to offer? What do we want in our church? And how do we keep some of the world's viewpoints from creeping in? How do we keep those things from overcoming the truth that we know is in Scripture? And so in verse 13 there, James starts by saying, how can we tell if one has real wisdom? How can we distinguish the two? So your first point is real godly wisdom is introduced and tested. It's the nature of real wisdom. So James introduced what wisdom is, what real wisdom is, not a false, fake wisdom, but what real wisdom is and how you can test it in verse 13. And he starts by saying, who is wise and understanding among you? And this statement is really a challenge. And if you remember back to verse 1, he's just talked to teachers and said, let not many of you become teachers because you'll incur a stricter judgment. But now he's saying, because some people think that they know best. Anyone here ever think you know best? Yeah. We all think we know best sometimes. And so he says, okay, let's, let's check this out. Who's wise? Who has understanding among you? Who, who's, who thinks you're a little smarter than the rest? And he says, 
prove it. This is how you prove it. And we think, when we think of wise there in understanding, a couple of things. Wisdom, or one that is wise, is someone, in a simple way of describing it, someone that's able to take knowledge and apply it to life. Okay, so if someone just has a whole lot of knowledge but is lousy at life and doesn't know how to apply it, we don't call that person wise, right? That's not wisdom, that's knowledge. But wisdom knows how to apply knowledge to life. It includes the insights, but it also includes the practical issues of life. Always the theoretical and the practical merge together. The word for understanding in this text and we mean, well, what does that mean? It actually is an expansion on the word wise, and it means to be really skilled at applying knowledge to life. And, and so he, James is using two very similar words here to, to, to talk about wisdom and then to say, okay, who is just really good at wisdom? Who's really skilled at wisdom? And in the second half of verse 13, this is the test. And he says, okay, let's prove it. This is how you prove your wis- your wise. We all like to think we're wise, but this is how you prove it. By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. And he says you want to prove it. Real wisdom is shown by what you do. Let's look at your life. Let's look at your conduct. Is it good or is it right? Is it following God? And is it meek or is it humble? And if it's not following God and if it's not humble, it ain't real wisdom. And it's a fake, false wisdom. And he's going to now expand on that as he looks at a deeper look of both of these sets of wisdom to, set, to show that if, if, we, if we aren't coming to wisdom with humility, if we aren't letting it affect our lives, we are fooling ourselves, we are deceiving ourselves. In fact, if, if we don't come to wisdom with meekness and humility, then we're just living a life that's about us. A, a self-centered life. It's all about me. That's our youth theme, right? Oh, no, it's not about me. Um, as they um, re- redo that theme from years back. And so James is saying, if you want to prove it, the overarching characteristic of your life needs to be humility. It needs to show in your works. See, wisdom, if it's knowledge applied to life, always has to affect life. I can remember stories that Dad would tell coming home from work and, and he worked construction, and they had a lot of, of pieces of equipment, whether it was generators or trucks, that were diesel engines. And every now and then he'd come home and say, they did it again. They went to the gas station and put regular gas in the diesel engine. Apparently that's not good. Uh, and there's things like flushing out all the gas, and I, I don't know what all it does, but... but that's not good because the engine wasn't designed for regular gasoline. It was designed for diesel gas. That is an example of not putting knowledge into practice, right? That is not wisdom. Wisdom does what's right. And, and you can tell that it's not wisdom because they didn't do what was right. This is very simple. See, God has created us. He's created this world. And so he has given us instructions. He has given us an owner's manual that says, don't put regular gas in a diesel engine. Okay, it doesn't exactly say that, but with our lives, that says, this is how to get the best out, out of what I, I want for you. This is how to best serve me. This is how to best follow me. And he's given us instructions, an owner's manual for life. And that's his wisdom being passed on to us. 
Now, it's real interesting that last word, the, the last phrase, meekness of wisdom. Because when I first read it, I'm like, okay, what does meekness have to do with wisdom? Seems like an odd combination. Especially, and James is dealing with it because the Greeks of the time, they considered it a vice to be meek. It, it, was, it was a negative to be humble. No, you're supposed to be proud and confident and assertive. And so meekness it was considered weakness by the, the Greeks of the time. So we have to understand what he's saying. And, and the word for meekness there is probably best translated humility, if, if you want a, a, a word that goes with that. So meekness and humility, it doesn't mean that we're weak, but it means that it, it is power under control is how I often like to describe meekness. It's the bridle that we talked about last week, the bit in the horse's mouth, where this, this power is being controlled and it's being directed. It means to not pursue self or puff up self, but to look at others, to control our own attitude, to control our own words. One author defined it this way, and I love this definition. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Let me read that again. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Gentleness, humility, meekness. These are all words that come together. See, if I think I'm most important, I won't use my abilities to serve others. I won't use my abilities to to, to selflessly help others. It's all about what you can do for me if I'm the most important. And so meekness is saying, you know what? I am going to serve others because they are more important and more significant than I. I'm going to use whatever skills God has given me to come alongside and do His work for the sake of lifting up others. Now, if you think of wisdom, you have to realize that humility is absolutely essential for gaining wisdom. How do we gain wisdom? By asking people, right? By being open, by learning. If someone is closed to learning and thinks they have it all together... Are they going to learn much? No, they've put up a brick wall that keeps them from learning and they stay foolish. But we, we find here that James, as he describes meekness of wisdom, he's describing the attitude of how you get wisdom, how you gain wisdom. It's with humility that says, I don't know it all. I need to, to know God's wisdom. I need to depend on Him. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes... Then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. And humility and wisdom are put together all the way back in, in the, the greatest book we have on wisdom, in the book of Proverbs. Earlier in James, James said, Receive with meekness the implanted word of God. And so he's already, he's already presented this attitude as one we have to have. But here James is saying, Who's wise? Who thinks they have it all together? You probably don't. Because if you think you have it all together, that's going to keep you from the very attitude you need for wisdom. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Just a fun passage to look at in the, in the life of Christ. Matthew eleven twenty seven through 30 and we'll put it on the screen. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And, and those verses in verse 27, 
He's, he's showing his power. I'm equal with God. I know what God knows. I have the strength. And, and so you, you, you have Jesus proclaiming his authority and power here. But then see where he goes with it. Because Jesus is the perfect example of meekness. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So how is he using his power? To give rest to serve others. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. The same word for meekness and humility. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the creator of the universe is saying, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. The one that could bring the hammer in our lives anytime he wants to is saying, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is our example of meekness and humility. So James says, who's wise? You, you, think, you, you think you've got this down? Show me by what you do and show me by how humbly you do it. That's the test. And so now he's going to go on and, and take a closer look at those because he knows that thinking we know best rarely is expressed in humility and meekness. He knows that we all struggle with thinking we know best sometimes. And, and, and in our culture, that's ever more the, the truth. As people get used to electronics and, and your apps and, and your devices, it is so easy that you can look up anything you want to think you have wisdom because you have what seems like the world's knowledge at your fingertips. That knowledge does not make you wise. It might make you annoying sometimes. But it doesn't make you wise. Knowing how to use that knowledge to serve God is what true wisdom is all about. So in 14 through 16, James is going to take a a deep dive, a closer look at the world's wisdom. At what the world calls how to be wise. And and so 14, he, he starts with, some of the characteristics of wisdom. And I have a chart in your notes that you can fill in. And, and he's going to look at both sides, the world's wisdom and God's wisdom, slightly different orders, but you can figure out where on the chart they go. The first place he goes is what are the characteristics of the world's wisdom? And in verse 14, he says, but if you have jealousy, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And he starts, again, speaking to those that think that the world's wisdom has made them wise, that they're street smart, and so that somehow gives them credibility. He says, here's the deal. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't say you're wise because you're lying. And so the characteristics of the world's wisdom always have these things as part of it. Bitter jealousy is this this zeal or this passion that is selfishly motivated. It's often harsh because the person is only thinking about themselves and they evaluate everything by how it has affected them. And when we evaluate things by how it affects us, we get harsher. We get more abrupt. We get frustrated. You know, the the video on dads mentioned having patience when our kids annoy us. Kids ever annoy you? Kids can annoy us even when they're not sinning. Just living with someone 24-7, it can be annoying. Well, why are we annoyed? Because what I want is being disrupted. My convenience is being disrupted. My quiet home is disrupted. When I'm at home by myself, it is quiet. I can think. I can get things done. 
And then three kids come in. I love you so much, kids. (laughs) One of mine is in the sermon for the first time today. (laughs) And the noise is, it's annoying. Is that their fault? It depends. (laughs) Yes, it is. No, generally just three, four people added to a room talking. It's just noisy. But I'm dealing with self-centeredness at that point. And I'm dealing with bitter, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition because this isn't what I want my day to look like. And so the word for bitter jealousy there is, is a, a negative idea that I should get what I want. Or envy sometimes is used there. Or grasping at what I want. It seeks the best for oneself regardless of what might be best for another. It also has the idea of envy in it. And so it can be an intense, inappropriate sorrow or anger over something someone else has or achieved. Because I must have more. It directly comes from our ego. The word for selfish ambition there, interestingly enough, was used in politics at the time. Now, I don't know why, because politics never has partisanship and never has people arguing about their point of view. No, no, yeah. We get this, right? We get this in America because we are as divided as I have ever seen in my life. And, And it doesn't even matter if the other side has a good idea anymore because they're the other side. That's what he's talking about with selfish ambition here. It's, it's this, this idea that a rivalry, I always have to win. I always have to come out on top. I don't care if the other person is right. I don't care their value. I will come out on top. And so it's a willingness to split a relationship and tear a relationship apart for personal power, for prestige, for my own gain. In the business world, it's stepping on people to get ahead. I don't care what I have to say about them, how, who I have to throw under the bus, I'm going to get ahead. That's the world's wisdom. And quite frankly, both of those, the world doesn't have a problem with. Of course you step on people to get ahead. Of course you look out for number one. And this is the different worldviews we have. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition prevent us from... from looking outside of ourselves because everything, like I said, is gauged on what I get. Road rage is always the other guy's fault. Our teams always lose because of the officiating or deflating the ball. I don't know. (laughs) Just kidding. It's a joke. (laughs) We're taught to watch out for ourselves, stand for our rights. James says this is what the world's wisdom looks like. These are some of the characteristics of that. And that second half, do not boast and be false to the truth. There's all kinds of ways of trying to understand that. The best way that I I think is don't boast and say, yeah, I'm wise. Or don't think of yourself as wise. Don't think of yourselves as having it all together if you're struggling with selfishness. If you have this selfish ambition, if you're all about you, then you're not wise. You're lying. You're claiming wisdom that isn't yours. In fact, the very act of of elevating oneself and putting others down, exalting oneself, that very act proves you're foolish and don't have wisdom. 
It's like saying you're smart while declaring something that's not true. I'm great at math, and so I can teach you that 3 plus 5 equals 10. And you know what? Take my number. I can do some math tutoring for you. Uh, It won't cost you that much. Who's going to take that tutoring? No, because I've proven by my words that I'm stupid. (laughs) I don't know how to... And, And not wise. And that's what James is saying here. If, if we're not concerned about others, if we are just concerned about ourselves, that's a worldly view that fails and proves we're not wise. Do not boast and be false to the truth. So if we think we're wise because we think we're better, we're fools. Because as soon as we think we're better, we're elevating self. So then in verse 15, James goes on to, okay, what's the source of this world's wisdom? Where does this false wisdom come from? And and in a simple but powerful verse, he says, this is not wisdom that comes from above. This is not from God. That's a whole different wisdom that we'll talk about in a minute. This is not from God, but he gives three things that it is. He says it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And earthly there is versus godly or versus heavenly. It's the world's wisdom. It's, it's from the world's point of view. There is a way that seems right to man. And that's called wisdom on this earth. This is the way that says abortion's okay. That says sleeping together is okay before you're married. That, that says lying is okay. That's the earthly wisdom we have. But that's not from God. He says unspiritual or fleshly versus spiritual is the next one. And that word means to not even consider that there's an eternal soul. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that leads to a whole different set of wisdom of of getting all I can now and living life in excess now because it's not from the Holy Spirit and not considering the eternal. And then finally, James just lowers the boom and says, actually, it's just demonic. It's demonic as opposed to being from God. It's the wisdom that is exactly what Satan is hoping for on this planet because it will tear this world apart. So the source here is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And our culture is assaulting God's wisdom. This week, again, we saw in the news Illinois lifting a partial birth abortion ban, allowing abortion through all stages. Village, these are human beings being killed and, and we're being called wise for doing it. In fact, one of the candidates for, for president that, that has announced, she talked about this a little bit and said, you are so backwards if, you're, if you take the pro-life position that you don't even have a place in society anymore. That's what the world is saying. And it's ridiculous. And it's chilling. We, we, we have to take and evaluate the world system for what it is. And it is false. And we can talk about morals and sexuality. We can talk about creation versus evolution. I, I can even remember when Mike Pence was openly mocked for saying he wouldn't go to dinner with another woman alone. And he's mocked as somehow backwards for doing that. And he's just trying to protect his marriage with wisdom, with godly wisdom. And people are saying, well, that excludes women from the workplace. That's not where you have to do business deals anyway. It's a ridiculous excuse for that. 
But, but we're so committed in, in this world to countering what God has. But Mike Pence is still with his wife. I'd say that's worth it. It's worth it. But in this world, what's right is wrong, and what's wrong is right. And so what's the result in verse 16? Where does this lead? Because that really is part of evaluating a system, right? What's the result? Where, what's the end product here in 16? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, those things out of 14, there will be disorder in every vile practice. There will be disorder in every vile practice. Now, this list could have been long, but I think every vile practice probably covers that. The word for disorder means uprisings, tumults, arguing, fighting, and dissension, which is really important to know. This section ties into our section for next week where he says, okay, let's talk about dissension in the church. Let's talk about uprisings in the church and disorder in the church. And after just reading this of where disorder comes from, it's like, oh. And so this is a, it's, it's the same word that was used of the tongue being restless and unsettled, always looking for a way to bring us down that we talked about last week. I, let, let, me, let me just give an example. List me a couple songs we sang for worship this morning. Good, good father, okay? So let's take this hat. Well, no, no, I, I want it spread out. Let's say everyone with birthdays from January to April, your favorite song is now Good, Good Father. Okay, someone else listen to another song we sang. Salvation belongs to our God. Everyone from May to August, your favorite song is now Salvation belongs to our God. Okay, everyone else... Your favorite song is now Immortal Invisible, right? We, we ended with that one this morning. On the count of three, I want you to yell out three times in a row your favorite song. One, two, three. Okay. That was disorder. But you didn't have the passion and vitriol behind this discussion. You've got to say it with, with gusto, with passion. So one, two, three. I didn't let you finish because none of those are right. No, just kidding. (laughs) When we come with worldly wisdom that says it's all about me and my desires and what I want, there will be disorder. There will be because we're fighting for my own way. I can't see any other way. And then James says, and every vile practice, which is a very inclusive way of saying every kind of evil. See, here's the principle. When we give in to self, we can justify anything. Right? When we give in to self, we can justify anything. And it's a scary, scary thing. And so in 17 and 18, we get a look at godly wisdom, at real godly wisdom. And he's going to start with the characteristics here. He's, he, well, actually, he starts with the source, and then we'll get to the characteristics. And so in verse 17, the first thing he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Where's it from? From above. And he's like, okay, true wisdom is from God. It comes from God himself. It comes from his character. 
We've already seen that in James. In James 1.5, James says, if, you, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, because that's where it's from. In verse 17, he said, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so we know that true wisdom comes from above. It comes from God. That is the source. Now, if you're looking for a source of wisdom, would you rather take the one that created the whole universe or the world that's still trying to figure out how that happened? Let's go with the one that has the power, that has the wisdom, that wrote the owner's manual. You don't want me to tell you what kind of gas to put in your engine. Go with the owner's manual. So then in verse 17, James goes on to the characteristics of real godly wisdom. What are the actions? What are the attitudes that go with it? What does true wisdom look like? And, and, and this is just faith and works like we talked about in chapter 2. And James said, okay, this is what it looks like. First of all, first and foremost, first thing he mentions, it's pure. It's pure. It's unstained by the world. And we have to think of purity in two aspects, both morally and devotionally. And morally is the idea that we often think of as pure. Blameless, but, but we think of it as like a pure bride coming down that is, that, that is, is pure for her husband. When we think of purity, we think of innocence. And so the, the, the first thing he starts with is really a very difficult area in our world and an area that Satan constantly attacks in our world. How are we doing at purity? How are we doing at, at one of the greatest gifts God has given, keeping it in the scope of marriage? Because God has given sex. He created sex. And He's created it in the confines of marriage to be beautiful and wonderful. And Satan says, no, let's talk about it in all of culture. Let's, let's make jokes about it. Let's, let's get pictures on the internet. Let's find ways, any way we can, to separate that from the confines of marriage where it's beautiful and does an incredible work to bring a couple together. And let's make it ugly. And let's... Make it something that is tearing couples apart. And so James goes there. He starts there. And, and we're challenged by, by thinking sexually. How do we speak? What do we look at? Are we preserving sex and sexual talk and, and anything having to do with that to within marriage, to within the appropriate boundaries? Because Satan is going to tempt you to take it out of that anytime you can. I worked in construction. Boy. It is a challenge. It's a challenge to stay pure. But James says, you want wisdom? Start by how you control your desires. Let's start there. And don't give in to the world on this because that desensitizes us to, to and devalues what God has given. But moral purity is bigger than just sexual. Moral purity says, I work to keep sin out of every aspect of my life. I work to have a life that is pleasing to God. And then another aspect of purity, like I said, is devotional purity. And and devotional purity, if you think of loving God and loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that means that's undiluted by the world. It isn't mixed with anything else. And again, we can think of marriage. And and in marriage, we want a a devotional purity in marriage. Wives, you don't want a lot of other women in the mix. That's devotional purity of saying, I am sold out to my wife with no exceptions. 
and think of it in spiritual terms. I am sold out to God. And I don't even want to give the world a a foothold in any area of my life. Now, I know we all struggle with sin this side of eternity, but it means I am vigilant and striving to keep that out of my life and remain pure to God. The rest of the attitudes really deal with community attitudes, and it's a quick list, but it's a list that gets us in a lot of different areas. James says, wisdom, real wisdom is peaceable. It's not combative. It strives to make peace in the community. And and this comes from the context of humility, loving others. In Proverbs 3, 7, it speaks of, of wisdom. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. And genuine peace comes when we deal with each other in a healthy, godly way, a wise way, where our hearts and our wisdom has affected our tongues and our attitudes. Then he goes on to say, wisdom, real wisdom is gentle. Some translations translate this considerate. And the idea is willing to yield my rights, considerate of others, being willing to put others before myself for the sake of relationship and peace. Village, in your friendships, in your relationships, in your marriages, even in your parenting, you don't always have to be right. Take that home. I need to take that home sometimes. Gentleness says I might not be right. I'm willing to be considerate of someone else and hear their idea. And the next one goes right with that. Open to reason. Able to see another point of view and change it if it comes out to be correct. Am I willing to admit I'm wrong? I've got to say, as a culture, we don't argue well. And we rarely see when someone makes a good point if they're in in opposition to us. And we rarely change our minds because it's not about the truth, actually. It's about me posturing and it's about me. And we've got to learn to argue well, which means being gentle and open to reason. That other person might make a good point and you might be refined to Christlikeness because of it. James goes on to say it's full of mercy and good fruits. Some people put those together. But care and compassion for those that are in need or trouble. And then actions that come from that care and compassion. Mercy is not an extra in in Christianity. Mercy is an essential and it's part of whether we're wise or foolish. And this world says showing mercy to people that don't deserve it, that's foolish. God says, no, that's true wisdom. How are you on the mercy scale? Are you more on the world's side or God's side? No matter how smart you are, if you aren't full of mercy and the fruit that comes from mercy, you aren't wise. James goes on to say impartial, thinking back to chapter 2, and that we're not hypocritical in how we treat people. We value all people the same. And then sincere or genuine, without show or pretense without hypocrisy. That list of eight things is a great way to test your wisdom and where your wisdom is coming from. Last verse, ending with this. The result of real godly wisdom, James says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
he really gives two aspects to the result, peace and a harvest of righteousness. Wisdom, because we're dealing with each other in a wise, healthy way, will always create peace in our relationships. doesn't mean we don't confront sin, but we do that in a godly way. It doesn't mean we don't disagree, but we do that in a godly way, in a peaceful way. Do you have peace in your relationships or is there angst in most of your relationships? Don't start by doing the, the, the driver thing and blaming the other person. Start by looking at our own application of God's wisdom because you can be at peace with anyone if we follow God's word. And so peace and then out of that a harvest of righteousness. It's real interesting. On your chart, do you see the comparison with the world's wisdom? Disorder is lined up with peace. And then every vital thing is lined up with a harvest of righteousness. I don't think the Holy Spirit did that by accident. He's comparing two worldviews and where they lead. And a harvest of righteousness is all of the things that a righteous life brings. The peace, the right attitude with God. It is a wonderful thing. See, the meekness of true wisdom produces the righteousness of God. I want to end by just going back to the Sermon on the Mount and reading a few verses. These are in your worship folder. We'll put them on the screen. But it's really interesting because James, as he's, I believe, reflecting on Jesus' teaching, here out of his list, so many of them sound like the fruit of the Spirit and so many of them sound like the Beatitudes. Listen to the Beatitudes and see if you hear echoes in the passage we just looked at in James. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's that devotion to God, that purity of devotion. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's godly wisdom. Which do you want? Do you want disorder? and every vile kind of evil you can imagine? Or do you want peace and righteousness to flood your life? It depends on which worldview you follow. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to see your wisdom as wisdom. Help us not to fall into the world's viewpoint that is so backwards, that disparages your wisdom, that doesn't follow it, that doesn't even see it as wise. Lord, help us to stand firm to the truth. And Lord, as we are people of peace, that we are, as we are people of humility, as we are gentle, as we show mercy, as our actions flow from that, Lord, our words and our tongue will get better. Because out of a heart for God comes words for God. And so Lord, challenge us to keep listening to our words, but now to think of it as what worldview we're following. Do I trust God when he says, be humble? Do I trust you when you say to put others before myself? Lord, help us to be a church that is marked by your wisdom. In your name, amen.